This episode is brought to you by Push Messaging God's Urban Airship. They can be found at urbanairship.com and by ThinkNear. Their location score platform delivers the most accurate location targeting available on mobile. Visit them at locationscore.com. Now, on to the show. everybody, welcome to Untether.tv. I am your host, Rob Woodbridge, and I'm also the founder. Uh, you know, on uh, one of my other podcasts, The Mobile Commerce Minute, I, we cover uh, with Chuck Martin, we cover these things called beacons ad nauseum. We talk about beacons, 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 beacons to the left of us, beacons to the right of us. And also on uh, another podcast, This Week in Location-Based Marketing with Asif Khan, uh, we talk about location and contextually aware uh, marketing and retail, and we talk about beacons, and we talk about beacons, and we talk about beacons. Then uh, recently, I was at in Chicago at Retail Loco, and one of the panelists stood up. We've said his name a number of times on many other episodes. His name is Ryan Craver. He is the former Senior VP for Strategy at Hudson's Bay Company. And he's the guy that was responsible for rolling out these beacons across HBC and Lord and & Taylor. And they've just announced that they're actually going to roll these out North America-wide in all the stores. Uh, Ryan, how many stores is that? It's about 140. 140 stores. That voice that you hear is obviously Ryan Craver. Ryan, welcome, my friend. Thank you for coming on to Thank you very much, Rob. Pleasure to be here. Big fan. Well, th thank you. So am I. You know, it's great that we finally get to do this. Uh, we we brushed, we kind of, uh, we ran in the same air in Chicago, but I know you had to you had to get out of there very quickly. So I'm very glad we could sit down and have a good conversation. You're in New York, right? Is that where you are? Yes, based out of New York. Based out of New York. The greatest city in the world. Greatest city in the world. Uh, Ryan uh, was the uh, senior VP for strategy at Hudson's Bay Company. And as I said, he was responsible for this thing that we call the, the beacon implementation across uh, Lord & Taylor. And we've documented this quite extensively. It's a very fascinating story, but I, I want to get, uh, get Ryan's perspective on this. And we also want to talk about what the implication of these beacons means to a retail world, not only to HBC, but in context to the rest of the retail industry. We're starting to see them roll out everywhere. And uh, I think that HBC, for the first time in a long time, was viewed as, a, as an innovator in retail uh, by rolling these out. So we're going to have all of that and many, 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 many more conversations. But my first one to Ryan is that, uh, so HBC, I, I was saying to you before we started recording that I learned about HBC, the Hudson's Bay Company, through history books in Canada, because it was it's that old. This company is that old. It's the oldest retailer in North America, right? Am I right there? Correct. Yeah. It's the oldest retailer in North America. Um, uh, you are not old. You're a young guy. How does a young guy decide to go and uh, work for the oldest retailer in an industry that at the time, probably when you started three years ago, was in rapid panic and rapid decline? Um, how do you end up at HBC? Yeah, fantastic. Um, so I actually started consulting with Hudson's Bay Company, which included Lord and & Taylor and Hudson's Bay. Um, and, and I have to say, I, I truly fell in love with the culture there. It's a culture that is not only the oldest, but it's the richest, um, you know, most traditional two retailers in North America, both in Canada and in, um, in the U.S. with Lord and & Taylor. And what I thought was so interesting about it was the extent of a challenge it was to actually make a retailer of that age and that richness in history actually relevant in a digital world. You know, you've got everyone talking about e-com. So they were talking at that time when I took this role on that retail was dead. Might as well close up all stores. Yeah, bricks beyond are dead. That, beyond that, they were saying that every single customer is now going to shop specialty only. And you were starting to see that in the declining sales of department stores. So if you're going to take on a challenge, you, may as well, you <laughs> might as well take one on that is, uh, you know, quite a mountain to climb and, and see if you can start to make some traction and, and some headway. Ryan, so, you, you, you decided that you wanted to do it to save retail? Is that, that's what the, that's what the goal was? I love it. I maybe love it. it came off that way, but I, I still think that there is a ton of value in shopping department stores and in recognizing the fact that not all customers and not every single purchase 
and not 100% of the wallet is going to be done online. And there's a way in which you can bridge that offline and online in a way that's going to excite everyone. And, you know, who cares if it's the oldest retailer that's blazing new paths and in, in how people are going to shop? Well, and I agree. You know, I think that there was a panic three years ago when we were looking at what we thought was the implosion of traditional retail, uh, bricks and mortar retail, and, and uh, companies like Amazon really thrusting into the limelight at that point. And, and I think that that's where we really started to see, um, you know, uh, comparison shopping, shopping in store and, uh, and negotiations starting to, to happen between the web and traditional retailers for pricing and price matching. Uh, and it did not look good three years ago, man. It did not look good for retail. Um, but I suppose if you're going to attack a challenge, this might be the one challenge that you, what have you got to lose, right? It's either going to die or you're going to save it. And, and it's fascinating to, to have watched this over three years. What was it like inside somebody like HBC, uh, some, like a retailer? Like, did you guys feel that you were doomed? Um, I think, I think there was a bit of panic set in, but I think once you start to take a look at these specific challenges and the decisions that need to be made in order to to try and change that. So, you know, I remember in those days, to your point, Amazon was the scariest word in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and eBay was also a scary word that no one wanted to talk about. But if you start to look, you know, fast forward three years, there are a ton of retailers that are utilizing Amazon. There are even more retailers that are utilizing eBay. And the world has shrunk in a sense as to how we're distributing all of our products across the world and what channels we're utilizing. Um, and so I think people are just a lot more open. I think there was that initial panic. But when you, when you start to look at Amazon and say, you know what, they might not just be an enemy, they might be a frenemy. <laughs> I hate that word, but they might, there might be use cases in which you can utilize them to your benefit as well as them benefiting themselves. So it's uh, it's not as dire as everyone thought it was and you just you need to you know be rational and realize what other companies are building and how you can utilize them. Yeah, you know in those 3 years up here in Canada what we've seen is a is a complete a renaissance of retail it would seem because I mean uh, you know I know that uh, you have nothing to do with these guys, but Target came up to Canada for the first time and kind of spread their wings and and it kind of it it helped Retail rebound in a way. Now their numbers have never not been as high as they anticipated, but even in my city of Ottawa, which is uh, around a million people, what we have seen is some of the big malls get even bigger, get increase their square footage by hundreds of thousands of feet, and being able to attract some some great uh, grand U.S. retailers into into the city. And that's a city of a million people. It's a small, small, small city. So uh, it we we're starting to see this, and it feels like it's a it's a I don't know if it's short-lived or not, but it feels like there's a retail renaissance happening, and and this is this is part of that, um, and I, I believe that it's it's that marriage of the what we're seeing is the terrestrial, the traditional bricks and mortar, and the digital stuff that is emerging that we're going to talk about in a second here. That it, it really sends a huge or gives a huge opportunity to these retailers who have clout, marketing dollars, a mailing list, an email list, and also infrastructure and everything else that you need in order to be able to succeed here. I just think they needed a swift kick in the pants. Maybe that's what Amazon and eBay did. Do you think that, that is that what happened? Whoa, Nelly, before I let Ryan answer that question, we need to earn a living. So here is a message from our sponsor. Untether.tv is brought to you by Thinknear. Here's a reminder of what they do from VP of product, Lucas Dickey. I was described as being, you know, location-based advertising. So hitting the right user um, at the right place with the right message. So that's easy enough to understand. The real question is, what does their family think they do all day? I, I'm not sure I've ever successfully explained anything about what I do. My family's pretty in touch. So I think they understand the mobile um, aspect of Thinknear. They, they don't know how it happens. On my parents' side, they've described for the last decade that I worked in IT. So most people tend to think I'm doing, um, you know, driver replacements or fixing printers. But I think they generally think that I walk around talking all day, nonstop, <laughs> designing things, tweeting nonstop, writing a lot, and that would generally be true. <laughs> so. So they're pretty much up. My mom does not yet have a smartphone and she refuses to let me get her one. So 
Given that we're a mobile advertising company and my mom refuses to get a smartphone, I don't know. It's like the fact that there are games on a phone is just mind-boggling to her because she still thinks Nintendo was a very novel and futuristic gaming device. But in my parents' head, I do IT. And I'm okay with that. They don't need to know anything beyond that other than that I will be looking out for their future and I'm one of the sons that they'll be able to, to, to rely on when they get old. <laughs> Help Lucas support his parents by going to thinknear.com. Without further ado, back to Ryan Craver. I just think they needed a swift kick in the pants and maybe that's what Amazon and eBay did. Do you think that that is that what happened? Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think they've all upped their game. I also think that there's been a lot of market dynamics um, that have made this probably the most exciting time for a customer or consumer there has ever been. Um, you know, to your point, the names on the outsides of the boxes are going to continue to change over time. So okay. new entrants are going to come and, you know, the Sears and the Eatons and the Simons and all these guys, they're always going to change. But this wave of innovation and disruption that we're seeing for the consumer, whether it's through mobile, whether it's through the internet, and them being the most um, aware and educated customer ever is probably the most exciting part of it all because everything is within at your fingertips at the highest level of service that any of these guys have ever done. And, you know, guys like Amazon keep us all on our feet. Amazon is within 92% of the U.S population within one day yeah so they have made same day delivery next day delivery an expectation as opposed to a premium and you know that keeps retailers on their feet and i think at the end of the day it's it's great for customers and and i'm excited as a consumer myself right and i'm i'm glad that retail is is hot now and it's it's seen its wave of disruption itself that, that whole idea that the consumer's in charge, right? We started to see that, obviously. Mobile has brought that to the forefront with barcode scanning, uh, you know, price comparison applications, all of these things that we all know that, are, that people are using. Well, in fact, what, what we found out is that only 50% of the people that carry smartphones use it to price compare and shop, and the other 50 are idiots. That's just my opinion, right? It, it, you know, you've got to be able to, you enable the consumer to be able to do the things that they can do with these devices. Um, but that's great for the consumer, but from a retail's perspective, you, you, it, it, that must be panic sets in as a result of this because, I mean, I've had opportunity, you know, when you go up to a, um, when you go into a store like a Staples or something, uh, and and this is a commodity store. It's not the same as HBC and Lord and Taylor. But I'll go in and I'll say, look, this I can get this over here for you know thirty dollars less, and they'll match it. And that scares me half to death if I'm a retailer because I, I just watch profits going out the door. And at the very beginning of all this, we went through that craze of discounts. You're in my store. Check in. I'll give you a discount. Uh, I mean, as these waves were coming in like this, where it's discount and price matching. I mean, did you you might you felt that in HBC, but did you ever? Did you ever succumb to that that terror and and uh, and acquiesce and allow that kind of stuff into it, or was it was were you guys always steadfast in in what you were doing, or could you react that fast? Um, you know, it's a great question. I, I think old school retailers in general are used to the Monday morning fire drills, <laughs> and, and and that happens um, over the course of time, and it's embedded in their DNA, and they love it. I'm a strategy guy, so I'm not a huge fan of fire drills. Yeah. But with that said, I think that checking of the sales over the weekend, late Sunday night to be prepared for Monday morning has led to a DNA that has helped them to quickly adapt. They may be moving the Titanic and they've got 20,000 associates and 200 stores to move and to educate and get on board, but I think retail's generally responded quite well and faster than you'd see in some other industries. Um, I think you bring up another valid point though. You know, 50% of the customers are willing to scan a coupon in a store, utilize their mobile phone, but then we've also got the 50 other that are willing to clip, clip a coupon from a circular. So, you know, I love saying no customer is the same, no one's 100% brick, no one's 100% click. And it's a continuum, and we need to figure out how we provide service to each and every one of those to continue to differentiate ourselves. 
Sometimes it's through product. You know, we may have a lot of product that Amazon doesn't have. We may have events that Amazon doesn't have. We've obviously got the brick and mortar that they don't have. So you just got to play to your advantages and ensure that you're providing something that's differentiated or to your point, you're going to get to a point where you're a commoditized product and you just compete based on price. That's a place you don't want to be at. That's absolutely a place you don't want to be at. Well, I mean, some retailers make a good go out of it. But, uh, you, you know, a couple of things on uh, on that is that when, when you when you start to think about Amazon, uh, I mean, all of these guys are now getting into stores, right? So, you know, uh, what didn't happen over the last three years was all bricks disappear and everybody become clicks. Instead, what happened is that the bricks got smarter in digital and the digital guys start looking at real stores, right? So Amazon's opening up stores now. And, and this is unthinkable three years ago, right? And look at the success that Apple's having with their own stores as a result, right? These very uh, modular and very effective sales channels for them, which is the Apple stores. But did you ever think that Amazon would open up a physical store and start looking that way? I personally thought it was only a matter of time, and I thought the time in which they would start opening them was immediately once they no longer had the sales tax benefit, mm. because they weren't operating within the state in which they had the sales tax benefit. But you know, if you think back to the wave of disruption by types of products, you know, Barnes and Noble was hit the hardest, obviously, you know. Orders Barnes and Noble because they are selling books and that's what Amazon was focused on and they kind of pushed that wave and then Best Buy got hit the most mm -hmm. and now you're starting to see Amazon and others get into the other categories. Fact of the matter is some of the customers where they are in their maturation cycle for how they like to purchase are willing to just purchase online and don't care if they have to order a couple of them, try them out and then return some. But there's other products that they want to come in. They want to trial. They want to play around with. They want to touch. They want to feel. Um, and so I think a lot of the e-tailers, the guys who have been just going off of electronic, you're right. Retailers caught up. They started to figure out digital and mobile and the other things. And they started to realize that a lot of customers do enjoy actually shopping as a leisure and do like do love to go to several stores and touch and feel product. And I think, you know, Whatever's going to come beyond e-commerce, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's Oculus Rift where we're you know, virtually playing with products in our head. I don't know what it is, but I think that balance is going to continue to be this, this you know, continuum that is kind of like a seesaw that goes back and forth between e-tail and retail. And I keep saying a statement on Twitter, and hopefully I should trademark it in some way, but I always say all e-tail eventually goes retail. And I, I fully believe that, and I believe – the, the vice versa as well. Retail eventually goes e-tail too. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because uh, Ottawa is home to Shopify, which is, um, you know, if you don't know, it's, the, it's, a, it's a commerce platform, right? It enables uh, people to set up shops online. And uh, Harley Finkelstein, who is their chief platform officer, uh, came out a couple, maybe 18 months ago and said, listen, you know what, uh, we're not in e-commerce. Like Shopify is commerce. Right. There is no distinction between uh, brick and mortar and uh, digital and E because it's all commerce. And, and you know, they do pop up stores called Popify where they bring in their retailers and they set up shop for a couple of days in, in a physical retailer. Uh, retail location and you start to see that blurring of the lines and I agree you know at some point um, even Chuck Martin uh, who does the mobile commerce minute with me talks the fact that you know 90% of us want to buy in store you know right. we might all do our research but 90% of the transactions happen within the four walls of a store so I'm with you like all E ends up in real bricks and mortar uh, commerce transactions so it's not something that goes away and especially when you when you look at the, the you know the difference between the amount of money that goes through traditional retail and e-tail and it's not you can't even compare the two there it's such a small small percentage but it is growing one of the things that happens here though is that behavior change so whatever happened here in in e-commerce and mobile commerce has changed the consumer's behavior and set as you said at the beginning set these expectation level that that has that has forced traditional retailers to match that so i always think that there's got to be this cost right so um not only about price matching, but about customer service and same-day delivery and all these other things that have started to happen. Uh, do you do you look at that and think that you know, as you when you were with HBC, do you look at it across the 
um, you know, across all of your retail locations and think there's been a cost borne and absorbed by the retailers because of what e- what what e-commerce has done. Yeah, um, uh, it, it, I've never been asked this, but it's a great question. I mean, it, it's no secret that e-com is less profitable for retailers. Mm-hmm. It, it's obviously no secret, but. What we tried to focus on at Hudson's Bay was the additional benefits that come about by taking on e-com and, you know, let me give you an example. Sure. You know, two years ago, if a customer came into a store and asked for a medium and we didn't have it in stock, we would say, okay, I'm sorry, we don't have it in stock. We'll, we'll put you on the wait list. Hopefully we get it at some point in the store and then, and then we'll, we'll call you in. Today, today we can look across 140 stores in the U.S. and Canada and ship it to them immediately, or we can have it shipped directly from e-com. So there are some benefits like incremental sales and better optimization of your inventory and other things like that that come about through this, but it's a continuous fight. You don't make nearly as much money when you have to pay you know, 7 to $12 to ship it directly to a customer and you're experiencing return rates that for certain classifications of the product can get close to 50%. So it's, it's a tough business. It's a very tough business. And, and that might actually be another reason why you're seeing some of the e-tailers going to retail because they realize the economies of scale and the, the cost leveraging by opening stores. Yeah, because... Uh, I think about that a lot because I, I think that there is this cost borne on the retailing industry as a result of what mo- uh, what uh, e-commerce has done and the expectations that we have, right? So that endless inventory is one of these things that it's just shocking to me. I mean, I used to I come from the restaurant industry, um, and uh, and I worked at a restaurant that was very successful, and I worked at a restaurant that was that failed miserably, and the difference was parameters. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not I'm not saying that this is right or not, but these are my observations. And I, you know, I worked at, at a restaurant that had parameters, that had a set menu, and then it had a, an optimized menu uh, so that they knew exactly when they would run out of inventory. They didn't have to, there was no unique product or unique ingredient for one piece of the menu. They succeeded because they had, they had boundaries around their menu. The restaurant that failed had, you know, an infinite number of things on their menu, which was obviously too many. And then they had they had one ingredient that went onto one thing that was ordered once a month, but they had to keep it in stock just in case. So they there was no boundaries on that menu. And then all of a sudden, guess what happened? They went out of business because they would, you know, the inventory costs uh, to keep the ingredients was just too high and, and, you know, versus what they could charge. And I think of, I think of uh, e-commerce and retail the same way. It's the boundary is the walls and they bring out, they surface the things that are important and they don't surface, you know, three years ago, the, you know, the socks that were available three years ago. They just bring out the new stuff. Um, it, it, like, is that an indica- indication of, of, you know, maybe that's why they're moving into this, this retail, the bricks side? Because they can control that experience a little bit more than, than doing it with, uh, with traditional e-commerce? Yes, I, I definitely think so. I mean, I don't know how much we intended to talk about this, but, you know, if we start to look at the various types of e-tailers in the world, there's some there's some pretty interesting uh, ways that each one of them is doing business. So let's take, uh, in its simplest form, Alibaba. Right. So Alibaba is only a platform. They hold no inventory whatsoever. They're just facilitating a transaction similar to everyone's familiarity with eBay. Yep. Right, so they are just the rails or the highway in which a transaction happens. You shift over to an Amazon, and Amazon holds inventory, but also is a marketplace for other retailers or other sellers. So they do have their own warehouses with their own product, and they are doing their own fulfilling. Then you move up the chain to someone like a um, you know Zulily, who is uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, is is feeding a customer hand-to-mouth. So they are only taking on the product that they know will successfully sell with minimized returns, or they're having the supplier or the vendor drop ship it directly to the customer once it sells. And so a lot of the retailers are moving to the Zulily model. And then you go down the chain and you've got just a, a, an e-tailer who is a brand new startup 
who has their own new product and they're figuring out across those first three that we just talked about, what do they need to do? And some are playing a role in the marketplaces, some are utilizing Amazon for its distribution methods, and some are saying, I need to get into retail. I need to get into a Zulily type fashion, so I may do dropship or I may go into a store. And, you know, it, it, it depends where you are in terms of your brand strength and how much you're willing to spend in marketing and everything. Obviously, if you're Alibaba, it's the best because you have really no risk except to, to drive traffic. Um, but it's 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 fascinating to see where each one of these various brands, you know, the, the Warby Parkers and all these guys, where they are and, and how they feel that retail plays a role for them, whether it's their own stores or it's it's through going wholesale like uh, Bonobos at Nordstrom. So it's fascinating. Well, and it's obvious that it is because it's, it's one big chess game here. Uh, and... And who, who knows what's going to work? But I, I do know, you know, for the audience that are listening to this and watching this, it, it, it comes down to the, the impact that, that mobile has had. Because as mobile has emerged as a, as a uh, I don't know, some would think it's a, a thorn in the side of, uh, of retail. Some would think of it as an opportunity to really uh, uh, engage with customers much better. Um, and some just have no clue. Right. I've seen some great examples or and I'm being sarcastic, some great examples of mobile implementation and retailers um, like Sears did, where you can do your returns from your car. Like that, that's very interesting, but you're missing the point of getting somebody there to then upsell them while they're in the store and have a good customer service in, um, exchange. But so what was the implication? So retail is is reeling because of uh, of e-commerce you step in three years ago and then this seemed like overnight mobile is the focus of everybody at this point uh, what was that like inside of HBC and what are your thoughts on on the impact that mobiles had in retail yeah um, so when I first started I, I'm a firm believer when you start any job or you start with any new client or anything you got a mystery shop you got to experience the brand for yourself sure you need to go to the stores you need to uh, play the role of a customer, mystery shop. It's a lot of fun. And you can see what it's like, you know, surfing their site via mobile, via iPad, via Android, um, going into the stores and asking, you know, those particular questions like, you don't have a medium, can you ship it to me? You know, and that was my initial due diligence to understand what we have versus what we don't have, which customer we are going after, which we aren't. Then starting to look at the CRM data, whatever we know about the current customer profile and how they're interacting with the brand, and then starting to highlight or isolate what other types of customers and things you want to go after. So I think I had a list of about 62 things. And naturally, you know, some of them floated to the top and some of them um, were, I think number two was mobile. Um, and at the, at that point in time, we didn't have a mobile site. We didn't have, um, any mobile apps and we, we just started to shift the entire focus of the organization to it. Um, and the overall thought on mobile was, is there might not be sales there today, but the implications on the store are so much bigger than we actually realize that we need to play a role. Explain that. Well, you know, I am, I, I absolutely can't stand anecdotal comments in meetings, you know, relationship comments like, you know, my girlfriend doesn't utilize a mobile phone or she watches cable TV. She doesn't watch Netflix. So we should utilize TV uh, advertising. I, I can't stand those, but at some points they're worthwhile to utilize to your favor. And when you, when you start to think about people in their transit to work and the time in which they have idle and they're surfing the internet to understand what's actually out there and what products are there, um, is fantastic to use when you've got it. It's also great to highlight other retailers that are potentially doing a very good job. You know, the ability to go to a website and query that jacket that you're wearing in your particular size based on a postal code or a zip code is, is fantastic. And all of those types of tools empower a customer to understand what's actually in the store. And we know that, you know, it depends on which stat you take from which source, but it's at least 60 to 70 percent of purchases within retail are impacted in some way, shape or form by digital. Hmm. 
And if you, if you take that stat and you start to see where all the time has shifted for customers, it's all to mobile. It was the only one that grew when you look at digital over the last uh, 2010 to 2014. We weren't playing a role in it, so we needed to start to focus on it. And we started to look at mobile specifically and said, you know, do we want a site? Do we want an app? Um, you know, do we start looking at things like Bitcoin? Do we start doing things like beacons? And we, we started to make a plan with a feature list and figure out which ones were worthwhile at the time and which were some calculated bets. So you guys, you guys made a calculated bet on beacons, which, yes, you know, it would be, it's interesting because, you know, there seems to be a progression that retailers go through, right? So they, you know, first of all, they, they, they move. Um, and it seemed like, especially in Canada, the Canadian retailers took so long to get, uh, uh, you know, um, a, uh, an e-commerce site up and running. I mean, even Walmart took forever. You know, there was years that went by that Walmart didn't have an uh, ability to order online. Um, and uh, maybe they were waiting. Maybe they couldn't uh, maneuver that quickly. But so there's that sequence. And beacons, from what all I can tell, are not even in the purview of the majority of retailers today. But yet HBC, the oldest retailer in North America, says, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna start with beacons. Lord and Taylor are gonna do a couple of stores. We're gonna do some tests, and then we're and then we're gonna roll them out across uh, North America." How, how does that conversation go internally? That it's like, okay, no, 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 beacons, guys, beacons. And how did you yeah. guys come to that decision? Yeah. So when when I uh, about two years ago. When, when we started looking at what we were going to go after, and then we had a new president starting, Liz Rod Bell, who took over for Bonnie Brooks with Department Store Group, we sat back and we thought about what she wants to be known for, internally and externally. <clears throat> and the idea was is uh, we wanted to be known as a retailer that was living off of our heritage, our rich heritage, yet innovative. And so we started to look at various technologies that were innovative to inspire internally and then externally be viewed as innovative. And, you know, things like Bitcoin and mobile and, and beacons were the big ones. The reason why we were so thrilled with beacons is not necessarily just to push promotions. It was more thinking longer term. When you think about stats of, you know, close to 60% of people would rather not talk to a store associate when they come into the store, I don't currently, or we didn't currently, have any resolution for that. We had no way in, in which they could potentially shop. So thinking about that, you know, longer term, we're only in its infancy for beacons. Longer term, there is this wave of self-sufficiency where I believe beacons will empower customers to come into a retailer, be able to query whatever they'd like, whenever they'd like, wherever they are within the store, pay either through Touch ID with Apple or Google Wallet, and then essentially walk out of the store or query customer service if they ever need it. Um, and that's kind of what we shot for. And we said, okay, let's take, you know, a 10 store test. Initially, we thought that it would be tough to do, but these things are peel and stick. And we, we found the right platform in which we knew we could c control the creative and make marketing feel comfortable. And we took uh, took that bet, and the results were a heck of a lot better than we ever thought they were. And we decided, you know what? It's worthwhile pre-holidays to roll these out. How soon into the 10-store trial did you guys look at this and say, I mean, we're going all in on this? Uh, so I'm not going to lie. I, I was following this stuff to the minute, you know, like pressing F5 when I was on a windows PC, like every other minute. Um, I, I was so built into this thinking that we were going to do it. Um, so I was pretty quick to think so. Um, but I think it probably took two or three weeks, um, after the initial buzz died down. So probably in month two. Um, but at that point, you know, again, when you think about peel and stick, the ability to own creative, um, and the fact that you're working with a platform that gives you the analytics at your fingertips to truly prove that it's successful, um, you know, it's game over. Why wouldn't you do it?
Well, so the, I mean, we we've documented the results uh, on all these other shows that, that that I run because they're stupendous. We saw we heard them in Chicago. You heard them in New York at the Beacons Conference. Uh, but why don't you like what were the results, the early results that uh, they kind of prompted you guys to get writing to go whole hog? Yeah. So when I did share these results at the at the Beacon Conference, I just wanted to make sure that I'm very clear. Today we're on apps that are very promotional or shopper based, intent based purchases. So these are customers that are coming to find a deal. Right. And when we would send an engagement, the open rate would be in the high 50 percentage. Um, the actual engagement then click to claim. Yep. So there's a coupon typically at the end of these or some type of uh, content in which they can reveal was in the high 20s. Wow. And so I, I think as long as we continue to find promotional apps and we provide compelling content editorial content that's worthwhile those rates will stay you know high relative to the other campaigns we're doing but if we ever decide to get into other apps that are more mass media apps um, we'll start to see those drift down but when you compare those to things like email and mobile banners and geo-targeted ads it's it's incredible are you at all concerned you know that it becomes uh, it emulates what what happened with email, which at the beginning seemed to be very effective for retailers, but now has become this mass distribution uh, mechanism for discounts. Like, is that is that do you, do you worry about that happening with these? Yeah, I I completely do. Um, you know, ensuring that we provide some sort of context, compelling content, or additional features is the only way that we're going to avoid that. Right. You know. If you think about email, initially it was just a blast of normal emails and here was your 20% off. And then they got a little more exciting where they said, here's an incremental. Then it started to get a bit more personalized. You know, we saw that you bought those boots and <laughs> here is, you know, or they put something around the weather or Mother's Day, some, something of that sort. Um, and I think Beacons will go through that same type of maturation cycle, for lack of a better word. And as long as we're creating something that has that context behind it or some type of compelling content you can't get anywhere else or an additional feature mm -hmm. that is over and above what they're currently um, utilizing it for, I think we're going to be great. Quick, quick example. So tonight we're unveiling our windows in New York City, um, 39th and 5th. Uh, and essentially we've got Nick Jonas, you know, 8.8 .8 million Twitter followers. Um, I don't follow him on Instagram, so I can't quote that number. But you know, he, him being there, the fact that we have that content that we're going to be realizing tonight, we can package that later, and we can provide beacon experiences with that Nick Jonas content. That's stuff that is incredibly compelling to millennial customers and customers that are associated with our brands and his brand. It just seems like there's so much that you can do. What was it hard to convince people that this was the avenue and this is the path that you should take? Because I know a lot of retailers, they'll wait for you guys to see what the result, results are. And we're starting to see them roll out in South Korea. We're starting to see them roll out in, you know, in, in London, uh, on Regent Street. And, you know, we're starting to see them roll out in other stores. Um, but the majority are taking this sit back and wait approach. But you guys were aggressive and, and, and started to lead in this. But was it difficult to convince people internally that, that this was just not only important, but just the beginning of, of the way things will be in retail? Yeah. I, I think naturally within retail, um, you know, to use some sort of metaphor, there is this view of Microsoft. They're totally <laughs> number two. Yeah. They're going to be number two and do it well. And if you're founding your culture on innovation, there's just no ability to do that. And so I think <clears throat> because these were so small and we could we could keep it to such a small team in order to roll out initially, it was okay, go ahead and do it. It's totally fine. Don't get too wild and crazy. Let us know how the results are. And then the media started to pick up on it and it started to become a snowball rolling downhill and everyone started to get it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I talk about this tug of war between digital and stores. This gives stores something to talk about, some way to differentiate service and it excites them 
to say, hey, yeah, we are the first ones to roll up beacons. There's the beacon in the upper left corner. Uh, check it out. So I, I think uh, eventually they got there, and now everyone's saying, I thought you said they were going to be rolled at the end of the month. Why aren't they out sooner? <laughs> That's usually what happens, right? Right. Like that seems like... So I, I got to ask, so now now, now that, that this is happening, now that they're implemented, so what? Right. Yeah. Like, so, you know, is this... Is this a short-term thing? What are the implications? What are the what's the impact of these things on the retail industry? Because we've seen these phases, right? I mean, it started with retail, especially HBC, with the like I think the invention of the printing press, right? That revolutionized HBC's business, right? And then and then certainly later on, television revolutionized it, and then ra or radio, then television, and then the internet, and then uh, you know then mobile came along, and now there's beacons and. Like there seems to be these phases that that kind of disrupt retail at every at every stage. Now there used to be a great distance. There was a great distance, we'll say, between the printing press and and radio, and then radio and television. But now they seem to be coming every every couple of years. So with this, what what's the impact? What's the implication of beacons on not only HBC but on retail? What what are you seeing that is that this is going to do? Yeah. So I, if we talk about specific features that I think will be coming um you know you aren't today seeing minor features like social share so i can't take a beacon experience and share it on twitter pinterest etc i think that's coming very soon mm -hmm. i think we will truly see mobile payment on your phone without going through checkout with an associate in 2015. that must be like you know i think of the manufactured experience of going to a checkout line. Yeah. Right? Like in a grocery store or in a retail outlet, it's like it is crafted yeah. for, uh, you know, uh, point of sale purchase, right? And and knickknacks and, and the interaction with the, uh, with the cashier or the sales associate, like all of that is prescribed. What does that do to retail to take that out? Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's obviously a, a step that retail will be scared to lose because it's another time in which they can sell, right? Um, but I think fact of the matter is, is you know, people have less time and they want to check out quicker. Yeah. And we've become a lot less conversational society because of things like mobile. I think for mobile pay specifically with, with the moves that Apple's made, and their adoption of gimbal beacons and others, I think they'll be the first that do it. Um, they were the first to do the mobile point of sale sleds. Uh, they'll probably be the first that that doesn't, you know, an un unassociated checkout in some way, shape, or form. And I think it's um, I think it's gonna it's gonna be adopted by a lot in specific industries where it, it makes sense or where they've got too much traffic that they can't handle. Um, Beyond that, I think that there's going to be some sort of customer service that will be built into Beacons in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I think that you will start to see alternative cases that I don't even know what's actually going to be built yet. Um, whether it's you know further scanning of products within store, whether it's shipped to home um, directly from a Beacon experience. Um, I, I don't necessarily know. I mean, you're going to see videos and things like that in 2015 as well. But I think uh, as people start to open up the uh, SDKs and the way in which they're utilized, we're going to see a lot of developers come up with new and innovative ways that we haven't even thought of. Yeah, you know, even customer service, it's a perfect example is that is that we've always thought that customer service should be contained within a store. That's tradition, right? Is that you're looking for a sales rep to answer the questions about that product. And more often than not, I mean, you get this at Home Depot, you get this across all retailers, you know, there's department experts. And then, but more often than not, they don't, they're not experts on that one product. They're experts on luggage, not this one piece of luggage. Yes. So, I mean, Beacons essentially could be that conduit to get somebody who's not in the store through the phone to be able to help you with that one piece. Like they are that Samsonite carry-on, you know, 30 liter luggage expert. And they could be in like Lincoln, Nebraska, or they could be in Ireland, or they could be in Canada. They don't have to be in the store. And it just, it, the beacon facilitates that connection between you and that expert. Do you see that happening, that kind of stuff? I, uh, that's actually starting. 
There's a startup called Chat ID, and uh, you just uh, you just did a great sales pitch for them. Sweet. That's exactly <laughs> what they do. It's essentially subject matter experts on demand on your phone. It's great. And you know, the interesting thing to me about this is is beacons might not be the thing that drive all these things, but they are the catalyst for customers and for retailers and brands to demand that level of service and those types of features in store. And so, you know, whether we talk about beacons or not, it's going to be some type of technology that creates um, a better bridge between offline and online. Uh, and I think that that is the most succinct way to put it. You can't have one or the other. Ultimately, it's got to be a marriage of the two. So if you're off, if you're online, uh, there's got to be something, right? So that's why companies like Best Buy, it's why most retailers allow you to purchase online and pick up at the store, right? And and and, uh, and uh, that happened very quickly. And the same thing now when you're, you, you know, you could always do that. You could now, anyways, you could be offline, literally in a store. And if they don't have inventory, you can buy it there and have it shipped to your home or to the store. Uh, but it's it's that crossover that happens when you're online and when you're offline, they have somewhere along the line, they have to intersect. And, and uh, so we're starting to see some unique services that layer on top of, uh, of both of those. I mean, it's, it's really, I don't know where retail goes. I don't know if anybody does. It just doesn't go away, it changes. What do you think are the biggest, like, if you just projected a couple of years in, in ahead of here, based on what you know at HBC and the experience that you've had prior to that and the experience that you're going into, where does this, you know, there's speculation. Store size gets smaller, inventory gets bigger. Uh, you know, the the concept of the mall disappears because the you know every store inside of a mall has unlimited inventory because of digital. Do you have any theories about how this plays out over the next couple of years? Uh, technology uh, inside of retail. Yeah, I, I, yeah. It's, it's tough, it's, eh? Because like you you know if you say something wrong here, like. You know, I, two years from now, we'll go back on this in this episode and we're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Ryan is so far off. He had no idea what he's talking about. But it's okay. Ooh, There's only nine people that watch this anyway. So who that, would? No, come on. There's <laughs> ten, including There's, me. Exactly. Now we've got a new one. It's all just the old former guests waiting for a reference to themselves in these episodes. And that's that's all that watches. <laughs> Sorry. but like, um, You know, I, I think uh, I think retail is never going to be dead. No. Uh, might might sound crazy. I think the way in which you're going to interact with brands and stores is is going to change. I think you hit on a couple of them. The first one, real estate is real estate. Real estate is expensive. Mm -hmm. Other than salaries, it's the highest cost typically. I mean, take out the inventory cost because it's fluid. But I think they're going to have to get smaller. I think they're definitely going to have to get smaller. I think you know, project out a few years. Everyone says that 90% of the sales are done offline. I think we're going to get to a point where the way in which we transact in mobile is going to become easier and easier. Things like Apple Pay, social media actually becoming social commerce. They call themselves social commerce today, but they truly aren't social commerce yet. You know, those conversions are going to go up. And, you know, the days in which we may see a 70-30 split, 60-40 split between offline and online will happen. And the only way you can take costs out of the business is to shrink the store size and make it more of a fulfillment center. So I think that will happen. The does one that, thing... Before you... Does that look like, like um, catalog sales at that point? Because, I mean, we had... When I was growing up here in Ottawa, we had this place called Consumers Distributing, right? Which is catalog purchases. You you literally have a catalog. You choose what you want. You'd walk into the store. It was a big warehouse yep. of just stuff. And if they didn't have it, they'd ship it to you, right? And and then that went out of business when when retail got fancy. This was not fancy retail. But yeah. ultimately, does it does it kind of does a piece of that? Just like we're back to network computing in the cloud. It's just network computing, folks, from the 70s. It's how computing originated, right? Central storage of all your data. It, this is not new, but are we? Are, does that does it turn back now as a result of, of that a little bit to that whole consumers distributing warehouse model? Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to, to some degree. I, I think, um, you know, the retailers of old, that was an incredibly lucrative way of doing business. Sure. So it's the revenge of retail on e-tail. Um, <laughs> but I think you're going to see more 
guide shops where you may have one of every single SKU, every single size where in which you can you can try trial and then it's shipped to you and you never walk out and it's easy and clean. Um, but the thing that keeps me up at night and most excited is, and I think we're a ways away from this, is the 3D printing. Hmm. Why? I think, why? I think 3D printing is going to get to a place in which there will be, you know, further commercialization of 3D printers and ways in which we can print textiles at home in some way, shape, or form. And once you open up the ecosystem to designers to design, uh, you know, specific ways in which they can print textiles at home, you're going to get some pretty interesting things. You know, basics like undershirts and underwear and things like that. I mean, they could get wait, wait. severely impacted by 3D printing. Brian, I can I can print underwear at some point. <laughs> yeah, I could print underwear. God, that would be the greatest thing ever. It's probably it's probably not the. Uh, it's it's kind of like Mad Men. Remember when Don Draper always had a, a fresh undershirt in yes. his. Uh, you could just print it up. Um, and, and you know, we may be way too far ahead by saying this, but. Economies of scale and, and cost efficiencies. I think we'll get it there at some point in time. God, I, I, I like I'm grinning ear to ear about the thought of printing underwear. I think that would be the greatest <laughs> thing ever. And printing a sock because how many socks do I have that just I have like single socks that one day I know I'm going to find the match. But no, I could print it. So I'm, I'm glad you actually brought this up because. I'm starting a startup and it's in underwear printing. <laughs> That's perfect. Interest in angel investing? Customer right here. Yes, <laughs> if I could do it, if I if you can do it quickly, um, that it, it is just it is the funniest thing though. Like a, a, you know, but I never thought about textiles. I mean, you know, the idea for uh, you know 3D printing has always been, oh look, I, I lost my cap for my pen. I've got to replace it. But textiles for me are very interesting. And designer textiles are another thing. Like I could get like boxer, the boxer recipe for a, a 3D printer. And uh, and then I could print boxer underwear, right? You know, the, the equivalent. Um, and that's just added revenue on top of added revenue because the costs are low for boxer. Uh, and, uh, and it's just a new revenue stream. So like does retail branch that way? You know, because I look, look, let's face it. Retail hasn't changed since retail was invented. Right. Yeah. Like it hasn't. It's always been an exchange of goods for an equivalent of value. Right. So it's either I'm I'm exchanging uh, food for this fox pelt. Right. Uh, or I'm exchanging something for tulips. Right. Or I'm exchanging something for gold or I'm, you know, it, it hasn't changed. And then even when we move into e-commerce, it hasn't changed. I'm still it's an act of purchasing mobile commerce. Same thing, right? But slowly the power has shifted from the retailer dictating the price to the consumer being able to uh, negotiate a price. And if you've ever been to a uh, you know a developing nation or if you've been to India, it's all negotiation. Um, and and uh, you know you, you feel satisfied at the end because you've negotiated and the sellers gotten their price. But what's gonna what's gonna truly change retail? Is there anything here? Are we looking at technology here that is going to change the, the face of retail? Or is this just a constant evolution and these speed bumps called uh, print, radio, TV, web, mobile, beacons, blah, 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 are just hurdles that, that retail just plows through and continues on down the same path? Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it necessarily changes retail to that degree. I think maybe certain categories it may. I think what you're going to continue to see is the power being put into the consumer and even more importantly, uh, further segmentation of the number of brands and the number of designers. Hmm. It's become so incredibly easy to design an app and to scale something due to the things like the cloud. Um, but it's also become so easy to start a brand and to access a factory and to do locally created and curated goods. And I think when you start to put things like 3D printing and marketplaces like Etsy and all this other stuff into the hands of designers, you get further segmentation of what actually um, enters the market. And I think I think that you know will disrupt a lot of retailers in certain categories. I mean, physical goods like things like groceries, meats, cheese, beers, you know, you've seen some disruption with microbreweries and things like that, but 
that product will always need to be created and sold in some way, shape, or form. But the creation of apparel and things like that, I can see some type of disruption way, way into the future. Um, so it's going to be exciting. Let's I think so. So you said what keeps you up at night is the long-term uh, prognosis of 3D printing and textile printing, which now it's going to keep me up at night thinking that I can print my underwear. Um, but the next, so, but in the immediacy, like what, what are you looking at right now that you're thinking this, this, this is cool. So we've, we've covered beacons and what HBC did with beacons and Lord and Taylor's doing with beacons. But I mean, is there something that just absolutely fascinates you in this space that you're like, you know what? I'm not sure how that's going to pan out. It could be a short-term thing, but I'm very excited about it. Is there anything that you're seeing out there? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple smaller things. I think um, the payment space is in incredibly interesting right now um you know google wallet's been going on for two years it didn't have mass adoption i felt like i was the only guy at Dwayne reed actually utilizing my android device to pay um but apple pay has been that catalyst to actually make it exciting and they've actually driven a lot of their google wallet transactions i think smaller guys like square the way in which they're utilizing proximity-based checkout is very interesting so i think that's an interesting space but what we're going to start to see is, I'm going to go, go back to that social media, social commerce comment. Each one of these guys within social media are very tightly wound together along the new share to the customer service slash social share. And they're trying to bridge out to things like commerce. And all of them are talking about it, but none of them are truly doing it yet in a seamless way. You start to see Twitter with the buy it now button. You start to see Facebook get a little bit better. I think that's going to be interesting to see if it truly shifts conversion online because of how much time we're spending. We spend more time in social media than we do in our own personal and corporate email. And so if all the eyes are moving to social media, I think a lot of the, obviously the time's moving with it. And I think a lot of the purchases will move with it. Um, and so once they get, a seamless way in which brands can add themselves and transact via social, whether it's Snapchat, Pinterest, whoever, I think that's going to be a big, big catalyst for that next wave of growth within mobile commerce. That is a great way to summarize. I, 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 I am excited about that as well. That's a huge opportunity. And, and I think when you layer your social, uh, your social network uh, and you layer that on top, layer commerce on top of that, uh, it makes it very easy, seamless to make a make a purchase, and all you need is that catalyst. And I'm I'm like the the Twitter buy now button is very interesting to me. Facebook and and commerce is very interesting to me, and uh, that I think is is something that we will see. Who who knows what the adoption is? Because you know some great ideas have come and gone, but uh, I love that. That is something that all of us should be watching, and then I understanding how we can have a how we can play in there. Yeah, I, I actually heard a pretty amazing stat today. Um, I'm on a panel next week at Decoded NYC, Decoded Fashion NYC, and um, there was a major app, shopping app, that uh, was on the, the panel call today for our prep. And he mentioned to me that since they've integrated Apple Pay onto the platform, any purchase that was from an iPhone 6 or 6 Plus 40% of them utilized Apple Pay. Now, granted, iPhone 6 is not the overwhelming audience, and we know that iPhone over-indexes within e-commerce, but that's a pretty phenomenal number. In a short period of time, like yes. almost immediately, like from 0 to 40%. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, Ryan, I've now monopolized an hour of your time. Um, and, uh, I said only half an hour. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. This conversation is far greater than both of us and 30 minutes. Uh, can I have you back on at some point over the next little while to, so we can carry on this conversation and see how things are going? For sure. For sure. I love being on it and I love talking about this kind of stuff. Well, it's, it's so fascinating, but it is, it's just so big, isn't it? Like that's the challenge when you've got these, these tectonic shifts that are happening in all industries at the same time, because we touched granularly on pay. We touched granularly on social. We touched granularly on even the stuff that we wanted to talk around, which was around uh, beacons and the implications of beacons. But it, you got to start somewhere. And that's what this conversation is. So the second conversation will dive deeper into the things that have, uh, that will affect the retail industry, if you're okay with that. Fantastic. I'd love to be back on. 
So where do we send people now, Ryan? And now that you are uh, now that you're kind of striking out on your own, where should we send people? Is there a place that you'd like uh, to direct some traffic towards? Uh, yeah, sure. So I, I've got a Twitter handle, Ryan M. Craver, R-Y-A-N-M-C-R-A-V-E-R. -E and then I've also got a blog that I infrequently post to, ryanmcraver.com. Um, but now now that I'm, I'm out of uh, the corporate lifestyle, I, I'm probably going to be posting a lot more, more frequently. Well, we look forward to that. So ryanmcraver.com and at ryan m craver on twitter please follow him up and if you do just send him a note saying that you heard about him or you heard about this podcast one way or the other just let him know that you found him here uh because it's certainly somebody that you should be following and i'm sure that uh, you're pretty responsive on twitter if you have any questions around what happened here yes yeah please the 10 people watching this uh you know you're one of them i'm one of them so there's only eight so the most questions you'll get is eight let's see if we can do more than eight questions to ryan about what we've talked about here how's that Fantastic. We have been speaking with Ryan Craver, formerly the guy in charge of rolling out the beacons for HBC and Lord and Taylor. Uh, who knows what's coming down the road for Ryan? I'm sure that we'll hear much more about him. Uh, we know we'll hear much more about him and what he's doing. Uh, and we'll get him back on to finish this conversation. Ryan, thank you for being on Untether.tv. Thank you. Look forward to hearing from everyone. Yes. Follow him up at Ryan M. Craver on Twitter. Folks out there listening, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thank you so much for spending time here on Untether.tv. It means a ton that you made it this far into the episode. It means that you like it. You really, really like it. And uh, I'll be back with the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Ryan.